Okay, November the 4th, 2018, lecture discussion number 43 on the book of Joel. And before we return to wherever it was we were, I thought it best to uh, clean up the debris, if you will, the tailings, the remainders, uh, those uh, portions that have not received enough attention. I have addressed them, but I haven't given them the focus I think they deserve. So I'm going to try to do a little bit of that. Last Sunday, I referenced the recent survey which attempted to examine the state of American theology. If you were here for that, I hope you remember. But the fundamental premise, if you will, or the singular premise, the one that had the most impact, is the one from this study that I raised about the 78%. 78% of evangelical Christians believe this sentence that I'm about to read is true. 78% believe this. They believe it's not only true, but it is what the church believes. In other words, they think this has doctrinal soundness to it. And here's the sentence. Quote, Jesus Christ was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Let me repeat those three words. Jesus Christ was the first created and greatest, threw that in there, by God. So there we have the sentence in four words. Immediately, you notice that there is a definitive distance, if you will, a separation of Jesus and God. That is almost immediately obvious. Was is a time reference. Created, of course, is that there was a period where he was not created. If he is created, then he was not created. That means he's inside of time. They believe that that comment or that proposal, submission, is doctrinally uh, sound. And that assertion or this assertion, this claim, is in fact completely, patently, horrifyingly false. It is an accursed apostasy. Seventy-eight percent of the churches, of of the congregants, believe that is true. Uh, it's inexplicable. How could we get to this position as a Christian faith? They think it is a proper expression of the person of Christ in the triune Godhead, and that is a catastrophic condition for the church. And in my experience within the contemporary seeker-sensitive movement, because that's where we are today, the churches have become these uh, mega systems, these monstrosities. It's a prophecy in the Bible that the church at the end of the age of the Gentiles, which I am hopeful that that is where we are, the church at this time, the time that I think that is current, will be a mutation. It'll be a mustard tree instead of a mustard bush, and it'll be filled with contamination that uh, the Bible identifies as black birds. So the Bible predicts very clearly that the church is going to go into apostasy, and we are watching it with this one survey. And I think it's too low, as you know. I said that last week. 78% is way too low. I don't think it's anywhere close to that high or that low. I expect 90, 95%. And I really do believe that the authors of it, and I somebody sent me a copy, I mentioned that in a minute, the, the um, the copy or the authors, I think their analysis 
has been affected by they by them wanting to be optimistic. I think they've interpreted the data um, in a way that has softened it. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. There's no question in my mind that the church has entered a period of almost total doctrinal failure. In my lifetime, I've watched it happen little by little. Jennifer um, from uninhabitable Arizona was kind enough to put the thesis on the Cliffside My Face Tube channel, where I was able to make a copy and and uh, read the synopsis of it. And a quote from the researchers caught my attention. Um, let me see if I can quickly find it. These results show the pressing need for Christians to be taught Christology. Let me say that better. I'm struggling again today. Last week as well. These results show the pressing need for Christians to be taught Christology. You think? Is there a bigger duh? Ninety percent don't have any idea who Jesus Christ is at all. They're completely, totally wrong. And this, and these people say, and they're rightful, that there's a pressing need to teach Christians what's true about Christ. Where did they get the falsehoods of Christ? Start thinking that through. Here's another if I can find it. These results show the pressing need for Christians. Oh, I sorry, I said that one. The state of theology survey. This state of the state of theology survey. My gosh, am I having trouble? I can't blame it on anything. Last week I blamed it on the banjo, which is always a good idea. He says this, there's a general lack of teaching on the person of Christ, a doctrine for which the church fought so hard. So there's your reason why they don't believe it right there. These results show the pressing need for Christians to be taught Christology. That's absolutely overwhelmingly the case. The state of theology. This is the state of theology survey. The state of theology survey highlights the urgent needs for courageous ministry that faithfully teaches the historic Christian doctrine. The last one, it has never been popular to preach mankind's sinfulness or the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. But at a time when when a darkened world needs the light of the truths of Christ, it is disheartening to find so many within the evangelical church to be confused about what the Bible teaches, what Christ says about himself. And I take issue with some of this a little bit. I submit that Christ, the truths of Christ, are not taught because of a lack of courage. That's not the problem. Revelation 3.16, if we are in the period of Laodicea right now, if this is our period, and I think that it is, Laodicea is not defined by a lack of courage, but through willful choosing to pursue wealth. Money. The Godhood of Christ is described as outside the final church. 
he's cast aside today, and it's because of two simple reasons. First, the pastors of these churches do not believe that Christ is the infinite I am, Lord God, almighty creator of all things. They don't believe it, even though the Bible overwhelmingly says that's the case. They don't believe it. And I've had them tell me they don't want to believe it. Because it doesn't what? Doesn't sell. It's discriminatory. It's isolationism. It's restrictive. When you say that the only salvation is through Christ Jesus, that eliminates a lot of people. There's your customer base. Not only do the pastors not believe it, I went to a a lecture a long, long time ago, my goodness, now 25 years ago maybe, where the gentleman got up and he was teaching at a major seminary on the West Coast, and he asked the question, how many of the graduating class, 25 years ago at least, were believers in Christ, and less than half raised their hand. And he was stunned. He said, well, why why are you being pastors? Well, because it's indoors and no heavy lifting, and the money's fantastic. They were doing it for the job. They had no belief in the, in the Bible at all and no interest in it. They were going to be Christless in their operation because that is a valuable or a viable economic model. The megachurch is a voracious today, today it is a voracious, gluttonous, devouring entity gorging itself on money. Just watch it. Just look at it. You don't have to be really awake to see it. It's astonishing. Think about what it was like a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, what the church was like in this country and compare it today. Again, Christ is thrown outside. He stands outside, Revelation 3.16, while the church of this age pursues wealth. It is not confusion. It is purposeful. Christ calls you naked. That's what he says of the church just before he returns. The church is naked and wretched and delusional. And Christological sermons are rare. Those are Christ-based sermons that are teaching about his person. Not because of confusedness, but because they are difficult to do. They are complex They are reasoned, and they require attention, studiousness, thoughtfulness. The evangelical church of this age seeks after fables, lying, made-up stories, the simple. The simpler, the better. Keep it simple. Inanity. Tickling 2 Timothy 4.3. 2 Timothy 4.3 and 2 Peter 2.18 which says great swelling words of emptiness. They are giving us what the church age will devolve into. So here we are. Combination is obvious. The pastors accrue massive wealth, riches on this earth, earthly reward, and the congregations seek, they desire, they lust for the vacuousness, the vapidity, the vapidity. Uh, of all of it. And that is, uh, thus it's become a chosen kind of sickening, dying dance of sorts. I, I, I used to describe it before it was popular, two zombies. Now that's kind of 
that's lost its value that it had when I started this so-called career of mine. But both parties, the leadership and the church attendees, receive that for which they crave. It is of no matter that it is not sound, not true. They don't care. There's no concern for the doctrine of Christ. Sound doctrine of Christ will not be endured. Timothy says so. At the end of the age, sound doctrine will not be endured. Sound doctrine is what? If you had to define what sound doctrine is, what is it? It is the truth of the person of Christ, who he really is. That's not going to be tolerated in the church at the end of the age. I go to churches... Um, I shouldn't say that. I don't go to churches. I can't stand them. I'm kidding, sort of. But I watch them on TV as much as I can, and I notice that they don't say Christ anymore. What do they say? God, 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 God. God. I keep I count. I'll count 50 times they'll say God before they'll finally say Jesus. Now, why? Why are they doing that? Okay, Joe from Seattle uh, sent me a little note, and you might remember who he is, but he thought that everyone would be excited about black hole singularity. (laughs) Joe, let the record show that most of the people laughed. (laughs) I wish Joe could see everybody's faces right now. But, but this is exactly what he thought. He didn't, re, he didn't uh, say it in this particular vocabulary, but it is, it is what he meant. <laughs> and so that's specifically what that is, is infinite gravity and its impact on time is ultimately what the discussion is. And he thought everyone would be excited. And by everyone, I mean Joe and Sherry, who is not from Indiana. We, I have no idea where Sherry is from anymore, but other than she, she uh, rebuked me for saying she was from Indiana. What's wrong with Indiana, Sherry? Anyway, they thought that today black hole singularity would be fantastic for a subject. And it fits, and I hope you see how it does fit. Anyway, as all of you are aware, having endured all these lectures that I did on time, you know this, and I'm just repeating it for the one visitor. The physics community has long debated time. They always debate time. They understand the value of time, and they understand the impact that time has. And Einstein proposed, as you all know, I'm repeating this, that time is an illusion There is no such thing as time. That was his conclusion. Newton saw time as an independent entity in a sense. So we have the Newtonian and the Einsteinian debate over time. Both of them, all all physics, everyone concedes this. I can't find anyone that does, does not concede. They all agree that consciousness is intrinsic to time. There is no way to separate time from consciousness, in other words. The Einsteinian position eventually becomes that we are the keepers of our own time. In other words, we have we identify time with a device, a clock of some kind. 
Now, there are, everyone agrees that consciousness is intrinsic, but they disagree with the level of consciousness. Some deny absolute consciousness. And I think, as you know, that I believe that absolute consciousness is essential. Without absolute consciousness and absolute observation, let me just interject this. Physicists know that observation, personal observation, is fundamental, is the foundation of quantum theory. Nothing exists without observation. That is a tenet of quantum physics. So that implies, obviously, that I'm, if something has to be observed, then the observer must have what? Consciousness. Consciousness is equal to observation. In fact, I can say com- consciousness or, obs- or observation as often as I want to interchange them. So without absolute consciousness, the creation is hopelessly inexplicable. You cannot explain it. In my ever so humble opinion, and I have as much humility as I can possibly bear, which you know is not very much, I, I will admit that. I don't think, I've been told many times that uh, you do not seem humble. And I say, well, what's your definition of how much humility do I have to have to have humility? What's the standard? I want to know. Because I can, I can reach the lowest possible level. I'm confident of that. I hope you see the irony. Anyway, I acknowledge that a few disagree with my conclusions with respect to absolute observation or absolute consciousness. What do I mean when I say absolute consciousness? I mean there is a consciousness there that has omniscience, sees all things. For all things to exist, they must be observed. I am, not exi- I am not observing all things, so you can get rid of me as the source of existence for, some of the, for all the things that I don't observe. There is no one that observes all things, so that for all things to exist, there must be an observer of all things. That means an ob- omniscient observation. And again, I know there are a few people who disagree with my conclusions. For now, they disagree for now. Eventually, uh, I think I'm going to be vindicated. And I know I'm going to be vindicated because I have read the book of the one who has the absolute observation ability, who is the infinite consciousness, if you will. He wrote a book. The one who is the sovereign consciousness, the observer of all things, wrote a book. And you'd think there would be an interest in what he wrote. But clearly there's not in the church anymore. The church doesn't care what he wrote. Ninety-five percent, if I'm correct on that. You would think that we would uh, want to see what he said. And we've talked about this before, and I just want to keep bringing it up uh, as much as I can, because so many people just get one lecture, and I need to kind of keep everybody on the bus as much as I can. The current time argument du jour in the physics community is, does time cease in an infinite gravity environment? Does time stop? Or if you want to put it this way, does time stop in a black hole? And obviously there are some presuppositions involved with that question. I hope you caught them. First off, everyone must agree, uh, must accept the existence of black holes. And not everyone does. 
for us to continue the discussion, we're going to go ahead and grant the premise of a black hole. But again, not everyone accepts black hole theory. There are holes <laughs> in black hole theory. And you should thank you for pretending that was funny. Oh, did you? Wow, that's really good. Let the record show one person thought it was funny. That's all I need. Huh. Oh, you're laughing on the inside? Well, that's you mask it well. <laughs> Let the record show that the pregnant girl was eating cashews or is it peanuts? Almonds. Wow. You can eat anything you want. Did you have the cheese balls? Good. Well, we, we aim to please here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know this. I know the situation. I've experienced it a lot closer than I wish. <laughs> oh, please! You, like you weren't the whiniest daughter in the world. Oh my gosh! You want to talk about misery? <laughs> we couldn't get enough pumpkin rolls down that girl to keep her quiet. It was that was brutal. Okay, where am I? As a trained professional, does time stop in a black hole? Let's go ahead and accept black hole theory. Not only do not, does not everyone accept black hole theory, nor do all physicists yield to infinite gravity being a characteristic of black holes. And, of course, if one prefers the Einstein position that time is merely a construction of the human mind, then time is relative. So we're asking, does time cease? Is there infinite gravity? Does time cease in infinite gravity? What is time? Is time relative, as Einstein agrees or proposes, or is it independent, as Newton? Not, I'll get to that in a minute. Independent. Independent. How'd I do? Okay. It's hard to spell on a board. It really is. You should try it sometime. These kids that do the spelling bee, there are obviously something wrong with those kids. You should stop that. They're celebrating some kind of mental deficiency. You shouldn't be able to spell like that. Could you use it in a sentence? What would my answer be? No, spell it. What's wrong with you? You're here as a contest. Not, you're stalling. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't get enough sleep on daylight savings time, did I? And I should have. I got an extra hour of laying in bed in pain because I'm in my mid-60s now. Huh? Yeah, you do. Half the audience understands exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you too, the pregnant girl eating the peanuts. Almonds. God. Did you? All of them? Didn't share, did you? That's. <laughs> okay. When it gets dark up here in Alaska, we pretty much go crazy, all you folks on the Internet. Uh, you might have recognized that by now. Okay, if Einstein is correct, and he's not, but if he was, let's go ahead and agree to that he is, then time is relative, and it's not to be confused. Relative time is not the same as independent time, which is Newtonian time. 
And I'll clarify, independent time is not really independent. Newton understood that it required infinite consciousness. And he attributed time and existence and reality to an infinite consciousness. He was an extraordinary student of Scripture. But Einstein says, no, time is depending on who holds the clock. And in some sense, he's correct. If I hold the clock, in other words, if time is something that my mind has created, and how how about this for a coincidence, your mind has also created it exactly as my mind has created it, all the way down to the hidden people in the jungles of South America and Africa. All of us have this innate understanding of time. Where does that come from if it is relative to each person's uh, mind, if you will, if it's a construction of our intelligence? But Einstein said that that would be the case. Newton said, no, God holds the clock. But the question becomes, who holds the clock? Does humanity individually hold the clock or the time watch, if you will, the timepiece? Are we the source of time? Is If there was no humanity, would there be no time? Do the animals have an understanding of time? I will tell you they do because they woke me up. And they weren't on daylight savings time this morning. They were on their typical schedule. And they knew what time it was. They always know what time it is. They're diabolical, those two relabs. If this is the case, that humanity, our consciousness, is the determining factor of time, um, if we are the source of time, then time is relative. Each person has their own personal time which they control. And if that's the case, time is illusionary. Steve time will not be Bill time. As Steve observation and Bill observation or frame of reference or location can be vastly different. And you really see this in the experimental thought, thought experiments on the people in the sh- uh, spaceships traveling away from you. Um, thousands of um, miles of uh, an hour or in some case light speeds, even though that's not possible. Or maybe it is. Depends on if you have the Renshaw position or the Einstein position. In any event, uh, time is a frame of reference, a location that is significantly apart. But if time consists within an infinite consciousness, if, if the opposite of Einstein is true, and that infinite consciousness declares that it does in his book, which I have read, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Revelation 1, 8. If time, all time, all consciousness originates from one consciousness, therefore all life descends. Notice how I made the connection between life and consciousness. I have to have consciousness to have time. I have to have consciousness to have life. Does that make sense? That's where you end up. All life is dependent on the first consciousness or the primeval life. In which case now, time is at the discretion, the will of the one from whom time resides. He gets to choose what time it is. He holds the clock. That's what he says in his book. He holds the clock. Time consists inside of me. Who says that specifically? Absolutely says it as definitively as he can. 
I contain, I hold all time. I am the source of time. Jesus Christ says that. 95% of all evangelical churches have no clue that he says that. That is catastrophic. It's one of the great truths of the Bible. One of the great truths of Christ. That he is the I am. Not the I was, not the I will be, but the I am. So the question became, after a while, you might remember my question from, from some time back. Does God experience time? Because he can see the divisions. How many divisions are in a second, in an instant? Remember that discussion? He sees all those divisions because he has the capacity to. So does he experience time? He certainly talks about time a lot. Have you ever counted how many times he wrote times in his Bible? In his book, it's over 900 times. So it's something that's clearly important to him. And again, Christ specifically addresses it in Revelation 1.8. And therefore, God is saying to us that uh, God time is a product of his will. He is not subject to it. And so therefore, we've answered the question about whether or not time ceases in a black hole. Or, if you wish, a singularity. What's a singularity? Black holes are a singularity. A singularity is defined as a condition of infinity. If you have a condition of infinity, then you are a singularity. Black holes are proposed to be a finite mass that has collapsed to zero volume and therefore creating infinite density. Does that make any sense to anybody? Let me repeat it, because it should. This is why 80% of Christians don't have any idea what is going on. If I have a finite mass and I collapse it to zero volume, that creates infinite density in the physics theorems. If I have infinite density, that infinite density is experienced or revealed, if you wish, as infinite gravity. A black hole is a gravitational compaction, in theory. Something, mostly they would say, some large body, usually a um, a large combustible body, a star, has collapsed inside of itself. So it had a finite mass, and it collapsed to a zero volume. And that created infinite density, and therefore infinite gravity. And now we can call it a singularity. Because we don't know what it is. When I say we, I mean me. Okay, them too. No one knows what a black hole is. It's a theoretically, it's a concept trying to explain the universe's system, how the universe is not only expanding, but also is stable. So they created dark energy and dark matter and black holes and infinite gravity and all of these things in order to come up with a working theorem of the, uh, of the universe, as opposed to infinite consciousness. I have a theorem on the universe. It's called infinite con- consciousness. They have infinite density or gravity. 
Is infinite gravity an actual occurrence? And if it is, let's go ahead and concede that it is just for the fun of it. Does infinite gravity stop time? So if I have a black hole and does, is there any time in it? There's an event horizon and right there in the center is my infinite density at zero volume. So there I did a much more accurate way of portraying it for you. I go floating by Steve in his spacesuit. Connected to something. I'm floating by. I go past that event horizon. And now I cannot escape from that gravitational field. And I'm going to the center of it. I have a watch on. Relative time. Some other astronauts out here watching me in his spaceship. I know you pay a lot for this kind of artwork. And he's a lot happier than me because I am heading towards, uh, if this actually exists, and there are other explanations for the gravitational elements in the universe besides black holes. But let's go ahead and stay with this because it's so much fun. He's happy. I'm not happy if that's real. Does that make any sense? I should have another box. How many times do I ask, does that make any sense? Is infinite gravity an actual occurrence? Does, it, does infinite gravity stop time? And I have given you the answer to those two questions already, haven't I? I did. Does infinite gravity exist? Does infinite gravity stop time? Okay, feel free to comp- contemplate that while I st- I'll move along in my own little relative time here. Okay, last Sunday, lecture 42, was the beginning of... Am I going to go back to this? Are you wondering? Oh, I absolutely am. I have not even begun to torture you. This is an extraordinarily important discussion. One, because it's biblical. Two, because the church has no idea that that people talk about these kinds of things, and that's a terrible situation to have to endure. And three... It's incredibly powerful truth when you understand what God says about time and himself. Last Sunday, lecture number 42 was the beginning of the Mary Martha conundrum and the Peter John. And I really struggled last week and I'm going to have to clean it all up. And I thought I'd do some of it today. Uh, But then as I started writing it, uh, it gets to be to the point where I'm only going to get about half of it done today, so we'll have to keep going. But I have a Mary or a Martha Mary problem, or mystery, if you will, extraordinarily interesting and and complicated. And I have a Peter John. And Peter John, as I said, has never been solved. I've never read any account uh, that explains Peter John well enough to agree that uh, that is the absolute... uh, definitive explanation of what's going on with Peter and John. And it doesn't, it's not just at the end of the book of John, even though I agree very well, or said last week, that we haven't solved what happened to John yet. Why Christ said what he said about, him, about John. What John wrote about what Christ said, or Peter for that matter. So we have two huge problems in the New Testament, the Martha Mary and the Peter John. Ah, where am I? Martha and Mary 
are obviously, and Peter and John, are obviously holding a lot more information than what's commonly assumed. The surface elements of the Martha Mary don't seem to fit. Martha is described as this little busybody, working really hard complainer. And Mary is the sweet, probably attractive one that Christ gives all her attention to, or all his attention to. That is not what it's about. Can't be about that. And the same is true for Peter John. Something uh, is afoot, a miss, hidden inside of these four people that are connected together. Notice, how many do I have here? Test trick question. I have two. How many do I have here? I have two. That's not a coincidence. Why is it Mary, Martha, and Peter John? What about James? He's not in there. Just Peter John. And when one comes across these kinds of situations in God's book that, are, that I'm trying to illustrate today, it's always a wonderful treasure in here. God places amazing truths into the actual literal lives and actions of individuals who make free will decisions. While they are making these decisions, he is placing in their lives extraordinary truths about himself. And all of those truths testify of Christ or reveal astonishing prophecies and facts. They're ancient mysteries. Therefore, it is wisdom to approach these accounts with painstaking effort and vigilance and tenacity and search out all the words and find all the related similar co-occurrences. And if you do that, you will never be stunned by what's going on or mistaken. You will be stunned, but you won't be mistaken. The most obvious with respect to Martha and Mary. What are they? I know, Bible quiz. What are Martha and Mary? They are sisters. Who is the bad sister? If you went to most churches. Who's the bad one? Come on, tell me. Martha, bad Martha. Who's the good sister? Mary, I have a good sister and a bad sister, don't I? And the younger one's the good sister, right? What's that? Oh, there's a debate occurring in the in the congregation. But but the point is, is you've all sat through the Mary Martha, Martha Mary, and Martha always comes off being kind of oh, she's bad, right? Peter John, who's the failure here? Let's go failure. Peter, oh, he's a failure. John is the beloved. Who's the beloved here? Mary. See how you start to put them together? Now, there is an element of that, but that is not the story. What's going on is that Christ is teaching us something about something with these actual people that he adored. He adores all of us. Uh, But if I'm going to start in the sister's business, two sisters, I have a good sister and a bad sister. Where where do I go? I I have sisters in the audience here. Let me find out how many. Okay, I just have two of you. (laughs) Both of them know that there's one of them is good and one of them is bad. (laughs) They might disagree on which is which, but they know. It's, it's the brother, though, really, isn't it? It's, yeah, okay, we all agree. If I'm going to look for a good and bad sister, where am I going? Well, I'm certainly going very, very close. I'm going to go with Rachel and Leah, aren't I? 
You're jumping ahead. You're already ascribing entities or political structures or governmental structures to individuals. And you think he's wise in doing that? Absolutely right. Every time you see the word woman in the Bible, it is always ecclesiastical or it's governmental. In other words, it's a church system or a governmental system, a country. These are not brothers. But if I'm going to start studying sisters, I've got to start studying Rachel and Lisa, Leah, don't you think? Also, who else do I have? I have Mary. Who's Mary? Not the same Mary as that Mary, but a different Mary from that Mary. And how many different Marys do I have in the New Testament? You notice i got a lot of Marys. I have Mary and Salome, right? Who are they? One of them is the mother of Christ. Are the, and the Catholics get this right. They call her the mother of God. So, yay, one thing right. They're completely wrong about her being um, sinless and co-redemptrix. That's apostasy. And that's because they didn't understand the continuity of germ cell plasm, the somatic cells, August Weissman. If they'd understood that, they would have known that it wasn't necessary for Mary to be sinless in order to give birth to a sinless God. But they do understand that she is the mother of God, in a sense. And this is her sister. So if I'm going to study Mary Martha, here I am, Rachel Leah, Mary Salome. John 19:25-27 tells us a great mystery about Mary. John, whose sole purpose of writing his Bible or his I'm sorry, his gospel, the sole intent is to prove that Christ is God himself. That's what John's trying to do. John records the third of the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. He records more than this, but he gives us this third saying, "Woman, behold thy son." And he says to John, behold thy mother. So Christ himself assigns Mary to John. And and with beholds. So these are amazing truths here. What does it mean, woman, behold thy son? She's staring at Christ himself. And he says, John is your son. And he says to John, Mary is your mother. What does that mean? Well, that, that gives you a really good understanding of what John is in the Peter-John mystery. It's a very important piece of information. John is assigned by the infinite, omniscient creator, God himself, while he's on the cross. His third of his seven chosen saints, he's assigned Mary the mother. What does it mean? How much information do you suspect is in that Uh, Behold thy mother, behold thy son. How complicated do you think that is? I hope you understand that that is a pack of lunch and a lifetime of study just there. Why wasn't it, why didn't he give Mary to Peter? Because it wouldn't have been right. And he's omniscient. The one to give Mary to is John. Not Peter. Why not? Why not give the mother to Simeon, son of Jonah? Just for fun, I should make the point, yea, a point. Infinity cannot be given. 
Infinity cannot be given nor divested, which is why I often ask how much time is necessary to acquire infinity. If you have this idiotic view that Christ was created, then you have to account for his infinity. If you have this equally idiotic view that Christ is sometimes powerful and sometimes not powerful. He's kind of a flame on, flame off cartoon uh, hero that sometimes he has power and sometimes he doesn't. Well, that means sometimes he has infinity and sometimes he doesn't have infinity. How much time does it take to divest of infinity? How much time is required to acquire infinity? Infinity. Point is, is that, yea, another point. Infinity must always be inherent, innate. I didn't say it, but I hope that it got through. Infinity must be inherent, cannot come and go. So, therefore, the answer to the question emerges if infinity can never be not infinity, and infinity can never be not infinity. It is impossible for infinity to be anything but infinity. Then time is, put time and infinity side by side. Which has authority over the other? So you've answered that question. Now you're on your way to gravity. Is time inside of infinity or is infinity inside of time? What Jesus Christ fully saying to us, what is Jesus Christ fully saying to us when he, Revelation 1.8 says time consists inside of him? And who else has ever said that? Whoever, who else in all of the history of mankind had any idea of the complexity of time and infinity and makes a statement about it? Who would do that? Who's ever done it? Only Jesus Christ has done that. He's saying that he is never not infinite in Revelation 1.8, which means that he is not created. It's impossible to create infinity. Hopefully, that worked. Now, why can't I get 80% of the church? I can't turn that off, even though it's humming, can I? If I turn it off, it makes a mess. So right now, the sound system is making a mess for the Internet audience. So this is where we beg for money. You don't like <laughs> Obviously, my advertising revenue stream is not really accomplishing what I want. I've gotten one donation because of John, uh, who wrote a letter to Coca-Cola, encouraging them and rebuking them for not supporting us. So we would have a better... Internet sound opportunity. We have the capacity to have more than one camera. We can switch back and forth. Wouldn't that be fantastic? You could see two sides of me at once. Can't they, TJ? Oh, yeah, we have that. We're just unwilling to do it because it takes time, energy, effort, and what's that other word that we don't ever have? Yeah, that's right. I don't even have to say it. It's obvious by my clothing allowance where we reside there. A bigger can. Somebody did get me a larger can. 
I have to hurry, don't I, young lady, back there? Yes, you're screaming at me. I see the, that, that uh, disrespectful look. <laughs> okay, where am I? He's not, he's never not infinite, and it is impossible to create infinity. It's impossible. So he cannot be created. And he says so. And I recognize that 90% of evangelical, evangelical Christian dumb doesn't care. I, I, I nonetheless endeavor to persevere. Martha and Mary are deeply mysterious. Last Sunday I asked some of the easy, obvious questions. So let's quickly review those and add the obvious, hard questions. Martha leaves the house to meet Christ because Lazarus has died. And Martha leaves the house to meet Christ, but Mary doesn't leave. So you start to see this, the list, right? Martha leaves, Mary doesn't. The first thing she says to the Lord God Almighty is this when she comes to him. He waits two days. We'll get to that in a minute. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, your proximity to my brother is critical for his life. What does she mean by this? What is she saying about Christ? The second statement of Martha to the great I am, the ancient of days, the judge of all things is, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Do I have to put that on the board? How many gods do I have? I have God and I have God and I have you and I have you and I have, but even, but even. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Again, same question. What does Martha mean by this? What is implied in those words? The third statement of Martha, her response to Christ telling her that Lazarus would rise again was was this. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What is she saying to Christ? You could have saved him if you had been here. You had to be here to save him because he was sick. You had to save him while he was sick. You had to keep him from being sick. And I know that God will listen to you. What does she want him to do? She doesn't want him to resurrect him because that didn't happen. We've got to wait till the last day. So what does she want him to do? I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What does he want? What does she want God to give him? Because she's clearly separated him from who? From God. Then God himself, who is standing there in front of her, then gives her the great declaration of John 11:25. He says, "I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And now we have Martha's fourth saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And Martha then goes her way. So she went, and then she goes her way. And in secret, she calls Mary her sister. And she tells Mary, in secret, Martha's fifth statement, the teacher... The teacher has come and is calling for you. And I asked last week, did the teacher ever call for her? 
Why does she do this in secret? Is this true? Did Jesus call for Mary? What's the secret thing? The end result is Mary repeats ultimately as she now gets up and leaves the house and goes to Christ. She repeats word for word, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary is weeping and surrounded by weepers. So we make a list. Pretend I'm making the list. I don't have time. Being that uh, we love us some lists, but there's a fake list. Martha is the first. She went alone. Uh, She says, Lord, if... She says, I know. She says, I believe. It's done in secret. The teacher is calling you, Mary. There's a four-day stench, she says. She's objecting to the rolling away of the stone. He's going to roll away the stone. She says, no, there's a lot of smell in there. He's been decomposed four days. Hot. It's a limestone carved out cave. We don't want to move the stone. Don't move the stone. So what, how tie that back? What does she want God to do? Which is, I know even now God will listen to you. Then later she doesn't want him to roll the stone away. She objects to the resurrecting of Lazarus. She doesn't even know it's going to happen. Thinks it's going to happen in the end of the age. Who's going to do it in the end of the age? What's the implication? Is Christ going to just wait to the end of the age to resurrect? Is that what she's thinking? Put it all together and try to figure out what she means. And Mary is the second. She's in the house waiting for Jews. Waiting, I'm sorry, waiting with Jews. She's sitting in the house. She rises up, goes to Christ, and falls down and says the same thing. Lord, if. My goodness, if you ever say anything to Jesus Christ, please don't have if or but in it. That's probably doctrinally unsound. You're in the 90% now. Word for word, they say the same thing. How does that happen? Text message is my guess. And then she falls down weeping. And many, and it says later, many of the Jews who came to Mary believed. So you have these two lists beginning. If you add Mark 14, 3 through 9, John 12, 1 through 11, Luke 10, 38 through 41, Matthew 26, 6 through 13. That's for the Internet audience. Martha is distracted, isn't she? You read that story with serving. Martha is troubled about many things. Martha went to Christ and said, I want you to order Mary to help me. Remember that story? That's a true story. But I'm not asking who is Martha, because Martha is Martha. But she clearly has some kind of meaning hidden in her. And Mary, in contrast to Martha, see, I'm putting them in two lists that are contrasting and comparing them. Mary sat at his feet. Christ said that Mary, he says to Martha, Mary has chosen the good part, the part that is the needed thing. The part that will not be taken away. And Mary is the one that anoints Christ for burial. Pours the oil. Washes his feet with her hair. Martha is the one objecting to the stone being rolled away because it's, he's hopelessly decomposed. Would you say if Christ came to you, 
He's standing in front of you. The Lord God, creator, infinite being, the absolute consciousness is standing there. Would you say, man, I, I think it's been too long for you to resurrect my rabbit or cat or dog? You just, I mean, you just can't do it. Let's just leave the stone in place. How doctrinally messed up are we here? When I mean, when I say Martha, I mean we. Mary has the not taken away portion, the good portion, the one needed thing. And she is memorialized for what she did with that anointing of him. She will always be remembered for that. When you run into Mary, you'll go, you're remembered for that. That's what the Bible says. And what follows that account? Well, it's the Lord's Prayer that follows that account. So you study that account of Mary and Martha, not just with Lazarus and Christ and all of but the Lord's Prayer has to be put in its place. Now, hopefully it's obvious that my intent here is to argue for the complexity that's attached to Mary and Martha. And I'm going to stand before the throne and I'm going to stand there and say, I believe the Bible, your word is the most unbelievable, complicated, incredible word that has ever been created, ever been spoken. It's amazing. I'm not going to stand there and say this is a bunch of simple stories and I don't believe any of it. But a lot of the church is going to do that. Because all they've been given is the simplicity, the, the inanity, the worthlessness that the church produces today. The vomit. He actually calls it vomit. I'm I ranting now. That's where Eric gets it. I hope. Mary and Martha, literal, real women who said and did the things recorded. But inside them are all of these incredible truths. With that said, why has John... Holy Spirit given us. John wrote this down. He picked these two. What's his reason for writing about Mary and Martha? You know what his reason is. This story, these two, prove that Christ is God. Every tiny piece of it. He proves that's his purpose, that's his, that's his mission, John. To prove Christ is God himself manifested in the flesh. So now, how does Mary and Martha provide evidences of the godhood, of the affinity of Jesus Christ? There are more elements. John 11, 1 through 19. I haven't, I've intentionally not included them on purpose. As you know, I leave things out because I want you to figure them out without me. But I'm going to give them to you now. Notice that John the Apostle denotes in his brilliant defense of the absolute deity of Christ. He gives us 68 verses. Of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, 68. He obviously thinks this is critical, crucial, important information. And it isn't about a woman that complains about housekeeping or waitressing. Clearly, there are three central pieces, crucial, if you will. The purpose is plainly stated, John 11:4, that the Son of God may be glorified. Think about that for a minute. Who can be glorified? Can you be glorified? You cannot be glorified. Why not? It's sin for you to be glorified. That's why in the Lord's Prayer we say, Our Father who art in heaven, what? Glorify what? You. Your name. Never says glorify Steve. 
Wonder why not? Jesus waits two days before going to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, 2 Peter 3, 8. It's a math question. What's through? Two days equals 2,000 years. What's he saying there? What's God saying with that? And then he goes on to say, are there not 12 hours in a day, John 11, 9? That he's the light of the world, but if one light walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. That's what he says, John 11, 9. What is that? That's Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Adam, Lazarus, and Christ, he puts them all together. Then Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Now think about that. He said, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, John eleven fourteen through 15. What does that mean? That is amazing. Wow, perhaps the most mysterious and incredible statement from God that John records. Jesus said plainly. Did he say plainly? I am glad for your sakes I was not there. He's omnipresent that you may believe. Believe what? For your sakes, as an aside. (laughs) Notice how I avoided, by the way. For your sakes is where in the Bible? Genesis 3.17. Death is for your sakes. That's what God says to Adam. Once more, Adam and Lazarus are side by side. Death of Lazarus is for the disciples' sakes. The curse of death is for Adam's sake. Adam, Lazarus, and Christ one more time, all the time. They are tied together. That you may believe. Believe what? What is it that the disciples and Martha need to learn? What is implied there? They don't yet believe, but they have to believe something. What do they have to believe? Well, he tells you, you have to believe that he is the resurrection and the life and the light of the world, Genesis 1-3. In order for Christ to be these things, he has to be what? Infinite. Creator of all things. Do you believe this? Church doesn't believe it anymore. They don't think it's important. They don't think it's necessary. They think it's in the way, divisive. Certainly doesn't make them any money. Next week, the same process that I just went through with Martha Mary, we go through with Peter John. And it will be every bit as extraordinary and every bit as difficult to figure out. And both of them do something that's the same. They prove who Christ is. That's the point, proving who Christ is.